Lord Jesus, thank you for the salvation you provide, and what a glorious thing to know that for the believer in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, we have a future and a hope, and that this life in this world is not all there is. We thank you for this morning, this freedom we enjoy to meet together on this campus. We thank you for each family represented here, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that you would minister to us, that you'd open our eyes and hearts to the truth of your word that we would be transformed because of this encounter with you, with your word, and with one another. We thank you for the freedom we enjoy in this country to worship you, and we pray for our government, our leaders, Lord, for our president and others in leadership. In these very contentious times, Lord, we pray that you would have your way. We know that you rise, raise up kings and you put them down, and Lord, we can trust you with that. And ultimately, our hope and our future is in you, not in any political system. And, Lord, we do thank you for the great uh, humbling presence of your word in our lives. And we thank you that you are faithful in teaching us and guiding us. We thank you for our military men and women around the world. And, again, we pray for those who are believers in Jesus, that they'd have a strong testimony of your grace. And, Lord, we thank you that no matter what we face in life, that you are with us, you never leave us or forsake us. Thank you for our children and for those who minister to them in children's church as well as in the nursery. We thank you for this church and your faithfulness through the decades. And, Lord, as you give us our days, may we be found faithful. And, Lord, that you would use us mightily in this community and around the world. We do pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially in China, as it's approaching this anniversary, October 1st. And, Lord, we pray for believers that they'd stand firm for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for our friends in Macau and Hong Kong. And we thank you, Lord, for others around the world that we have not met yet. And we pray for them. Thank you for blessing us with this morning. Thank you for each one here. Thank you for our guests. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us today, for it's in the name of the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen. amen. You may be seated. I've been thinking, of course, I think a lot about... Uh, teaching and preaching God's Word, obviously, and uh, the great privilege of being here before you today. And sometimes, uh, I don't know if you've experienced it, but sometimes there are passages and messages which create dissonance of the soul, dissonance. Dissonance is maybe not a word you use very often, uh, but dissonance means that there is a, a, a jarring reality that what you're hearing you may disagree with or it is taking you out of a comfort zone. I've been told that the only way that we experience lasting change in life, uh, you know, short of the Holy Spirit moving us, is the fact that we're either in so much pain that we are willing to change what we're doing, or we see a great benefit in the, the proposed change in our life. Well, today as we approach a passage of Scripture, if you are a student of God's Word and you think deeply about these things, I think you will find there will be some dissonance in your soul in this passage. And uh, what sermons really ought to do is create a tension in your life and in my life. Every time we approach God's Word, it should create a tension in our soul. And then it draws out some profound questions about God, His character, life as we know it, the future and the hope we say we have. And so those are some things. I think dissonance actually is a musical term when there are two jarring kind of uh, musics going on or, or melodies or uh, uh, instruments, and uh, it, it's, it, it, it assaults our ears, doesn't it? Well, 
God's word can assault us like that, and it should, because that's when we decide whether or not do I really believe what I say I believe? Do I really rest in what God's word is teaching us today? You've often heard uh, me use the the theological phrase uh, sovereignty, God's sovereignty, and we throw that word around. You read about it, uh, but have you really thought about what is God's sovereignty? Okay, what does it mean to be sovereign? Of course, you think of a king being sovereign. Well, out of uh, Nelson's new illustrated Bible dictionary, here is their definition by some very good theologians that I admire. They define the sovereignty of God very simply as this. It's a theological term that refers to the unlimited power of God who has sovereign control over the affairs of nature and history. A theological term that refers to the unlimited power, notice the absolute statements here, of God who has sovereign control over the affairs of nature and history. And today in Psalm 121, really the theme is the providence of God. That's a word we don't use very often unless we're referring to a city in Rhode Island. But uh, providence of God is the outworking of his sovereignty. And this providence is defined this way. J.I. Packer, who's a theologian and a writer, you may have read a lot by J.I. Packer, He defines God's providence this way. It is the unceasing activity of the creator whereby an overflowing bounty and goodwill he upholds his creatures in ordered existence, guides and governs all events, circumstances, and free acts of angels and men and directs everything to its appointed goal for his own glory. I will not read that again. It is a very wordy definition. It's in your bulletin insert for you if you would like to have that one. This is where we run into the dissonance or <clears throat> the, the uh, tension in our soul because we see the Bible teaching the complete sovereignty and providence of God. He's in control of all things at all places at all times. And then we also see that we are taught in Scripture that man has free will. I try not to use that term because technically it's not ultimately free will because I cannot astral project myself to Pluto. Okay, that's ultimate free will. But we do have the ability to make choices within a realm, okay, within a certain realm that God has set up. We do have the ability to make choices. And so that is the dissonance is that on one hand, the Bible teaches us that God is sovereign. We're going to see that in providential. We'll see that in Psalm 121. And on the other hand, man has the ability to make choices in, in our desire to understand those two things. In fact, technically in Scripture, it's called an antinomy, two equally taught truths which seem to oppose one another. But yet the Bible teaches them, and we want to weld those things together. It's like going over to the railroad here and bending those rails to meet and weld them together so we understand God's sovereignty and man's ability to make choices. And yet the Bible does not do that for us. And so we walk by faith knowing that Yes, I can make choices, and God is completely sovereign. We don't understand how this all works out. His sovereignty is carried out in his providence, and that creates a problem. There's the age-old problem is if God, in his word, says he is all-powerful and all-loving, then why do we suffer? Why do we suffer? Why is there tremendous suffering in this world? And, of course, The doubters would say and the skeptics would say that either God is not all-powerful or he's not all-loving because he's not doing anything about the suffering. 
And uh, in fact, I watched a movie this week. And by the way, when I mention a movie, I'm not recommending it, uh, but I happened to see it. It's called The Impossible. And it's about the tsunami that occurred on the day after Christmas in 2004 in South Asia. And it's a true story about a family from Spain, a doctor, her name was Maria, or her name is Maria Bellon, had three, has three sons and a husband. They were all there on the holiday at a resort in Thailand when the tsunami hit. And it's very graphic. I mean, it is, it is very graphic, the destruction. I don't know how they did that, but the destruction that takes place uh, in, the, in, that, in that event. Uh, but you think about that. And in the resort they were in, over 4,000 people perished. And in the tsunami as a whole, if you remember, uh, almost 300,000 people lost their lives in the tsunami. And millions of people were affected around the world. Well, the Bilans survived. It's an amazing story of survival, how they were separated. And these were little kids, not big kids, and uh, how they survived it. And she still travels, I understand, and meets with tsunami survivors uh, around the world. And so the question on all of our lips, and we could name a number of catastrophes that we've been witness to in this country and other countries around the world, the name, uh, the, the thing on our lips that uh, we verbalize sometimes is, where is God in all of this pain? Where is God in all of this? And even more uh, urgently, we ask, where is he going, concerning the adversities in my personal life? It's not just these big catastrophic events, but it's in my own life, too. And after that uh, South Asian tsunami, a writer in the Herald of Glasgow, Scotland, wrote the following, and I quote this writer, quote, God, if there is a God, should be ashamed of himself. The sheer enormity of the Asian tsunami disaster, the death, destruction, havoc it has wreaked, the scale of the misery it has caused must surely test the faith of even the firmest believer. I hope that I am right that there is no God. For if there were, then I'd have, he'd have to shoulder the blame. And in my book, he would be as guilty as sin, and I'd want nothing to do with him, unquote. And that is a very typical response to any kind of a catastrophe and the loss of life. And actually, many Christians don't totally understand the sovereignty of God. Because later on, an online poll ran for many months and asked the following question about uh, the tsunami. This was on the website, beliefnet.com. And the question was, is, quote, does God have a role in natural disasters? The results consistently show that almost half of those polled agreed with this following statement, quote, although I believe in God, the supernatural had nothing to do with this tragedy, unquote. And so many of you perhaps are in that same thing. How do we reconcile? How do we put handles on the pain and suffering in life? Adversity with its emotional pain comes in many forms, and ultimately it comes down to each one of us as individuals, doesn't it? There are many heartaches, the heartaches of unhappy marriages, the disappointment of a miscarried pregnancy, the grief over spiritually indifferent children or rebellious children, the anxiety of someone losing their job and being unable to provide for their family, uh, the staggering uh, report of a terminal illness, death. Uh, still others experience the sting of injustice, the dull ache of loneliness, stabbing pain of unexpected grief. All of us, if you've lived long enough, have had those moments, haven't we? There's humiliation, there's rejection, there's hurt, there's anguish, of uh, some of it caused by our own desires and selfishness. 
And there's despair realizing that in difficult circumstances, sometimes there doesn't seem to be an answer. And all of these circumstances contribute to a life of anxiety. In fact, uh, if you are a, a, a person who watches the news all the time, your anxiety level is probably up pretty high, isn't it? As we look at what's going on around us in our culture and society and around the world. But yet, uh, our adversities are chronic and persistent, aren't they? And so this creates a dissonance in our soul when we read this Psalm 121. And we'll unpack that here in a minute. Because even Christians in adversities and difficulties are tempted to ask, where is God? What is he doing? Has he abandoned us? Uh, what, doesn't he care about me at all? And is God really in control? Is he really sovereign? Is he really trustworthy? Even the Apostle Paul in uh, the New Testament pleaded with God to remove the thorn in his flesh three times, whatever that was, this physical infirmity or whatever it was. We're not told. In the Old Testament, in Genesis 40, Joseph pleaded with Pharaoh's cupbearer to get me out of this prison. By the way, Joseph was in prison for 13 years in his adversity and difficulty, and uh, you need to remember that. The writer of Hebrews very honestly states, no discipline seems pleasant for the time, but it is painful. It is painful. And so there is this difficulty, man's free will and God's sovereignty. How do we reconcile those things? You know, it's an interesting verse in Ecclesiastes 7.13. Solomon, it's maybe one of the haunting verses for me personally. But Solomon writes there, and I'm reminded of this this week as I studied through this psalm and then watched the movie on the tsunami. Solomon wrote, Consider what God has done. Who can straighten out what he has made crooked? Who can straighten out what he has made crooked? I don't know if many of you know this, but I've always rode, ridden motorcycles. I still ride motorcycles. And uh, my neighbor friend Gordon has inspired me to keep going. You know, don't give up. Uh, but anyway, one of my favorite runs is up out into the highland wheat country, and you get up on, uh, on, one of the, on this uh, one road, and it's high enough you can see the Stewart Mountains and see way up north all around you. It's beautiful. And it's a straight road, and uh, you just keep going, and all of a sudden there's a 90-degree left turn. And I can't see why there's a reason for that left turn. And it goes left and a sweeping right, and then back another right-hand turn, and then another left-hand turn. And there's no reason for it from my perspective. And plus, they didn't build the road right. It goosed me up every time, even though it's, I know it's coming. But, you know, so I'm hitting the brakes. Oh, no, wait, wait. And, uh, but there's a crooked part of that road I do not get. Now, if I could talk to the engineers, the road engineers who designed it, they could probably tell me exactly why it's that way and why it's built the way it's built. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten out what he has made crooked? Perhaps you're here today and something crooked has come into your life. You know, it's part of this adversity and difficulty of life. Uh, so the question is, is can I trust God even though he doesn't straighten out my crooked part right away? Can I trust God in this? Do I really believe that God who declares that he loves me and knows what's best in me is in control of my situation? Could I trust him even if I didn't understand? You know, we Americans want to understand what the pain is that we're going through. 
The scriptures teach us that we must believe that God is completely sovereign if we are to trust him in adversity. I've said it before, but the key to the Christian life is to believe and know, even though you don't understand it, that God is completely sovereign, that he is working out a providential plan that we don't understand, but is for his glory and for the good of his people. And we know that the atmosphere in which we live militates against that. The, the, you know, society and culture tells us, oh, forget God. Look at this. No, go back to that. And... Uh, That quote I read you by J.I. Packer, uh, the definition of providence, when you read that, again, notice the absolute terms, all events, all acts, directs everything. Clearly, there is no concept in that definition of now and then part-time governance of God on this planet, on this world. Jerry Bridges, I like his definition better because it's shorter. (laughs) And Jerry Bridges, a writer, uh, writes these words about God's providence. He says, God's providence is his constant care for and absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and for the good of his people. Again, notice the absolute terms. Constant care of, absolute rule over all creation. Nothing, not even the smallest virus escapes his care and control. God knows about all these things. We just don't understand his purposes beyond it. But notice also the twofold objective in that definition. It's on the back, at the bottom of the back of your insert also. God, the twofold objective of God's providence is his own glory and the good of his people. His own glory and for the good of his people. These two objectives never work against each other. They're always, always in harmony because God is perfect. God never pursues his glory at the expense of the good of his people, nor does he he ever seek our good at the expense of his glory. They work in harmony. They are always together. Remember, God in his character is love. The Bible declares he is love. And in that great love, all of these things flow out. And we don't understand them, just like I don't understand the crook in that road up in the high wheat country. And most of the time, I don't understand the crooked things that come into my life. But they're there. And so we come to Psalm 121, very familiar psalm. Remember, we are studying the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through 134. This is a complete package. These were songs. This is Hebrew poetry. These were songs that were sung as the people made a pilgrimage from wherever they lived around Israel up to Jerusalem three times a year. They were commanded by God in Exodus and they were to go up, at, uh, they made their way to Jerusalem at the Passover in the spring, Pentecost, or Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the summer, and the Day of Atonement in the fall, to go up to the temple to worship God. And all of these psalms together, as a package, the overriding umbrella is worship of God. And we're going to see that in that. And last week we looked at Psalm 120, the beginning one, and it is called the Psalm of Lament. Remember, it begins with the psalmist who's anonymous to us saying, I am in distress. I am in trouble. At the end of it, he says, they are for war, these pagan neighbors. So distress and war, and in the middle is slander and deception. It's not a very happy psalm to begin your trek to worship God, is it? But yet it is the point where we begin, where we recognize that we need to turn our back on what The world is doing to us. Remember in Psalm 120, he said, Woe is me, for I, in verse 5, I sojourn in Mesech, and I dwell among the tents of Kedar. 
And Kedar can be translated darkness. And it's about the culture, the pagan culture this psalmist was living in and Israel was surrounded by. And he just was sick of heart of it. And we talked last week about the beginning place of movement towards God is an attitude of repentance that I'm no longer going to be part of Mesek and Kedar. I'm turning my back on those things and I am setting my focus on what, where God is and what's going on with him. And so we need to remember that this was a psalm of lament is how they characterize it. In the psalms, there's different types of literature. And I've listed those for you on the back, but each one of those psalms is a type of literature, uh, even though it's all Hebrew poetry, but has great truths about who and what God is and the things we face today in the 21st century. Each one of these psalms will teach us. A lament is an appeal for intervention from a compassionate God. And that's what the psalmist is doing. Please remove me from this situation. This is the crooked path that I'm on. Remove me. I want out of that. Whereas a lamentation is different. Remember Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Later on, he writes a whole book, and it's called Lamentations. And it's like this continual crying. And lamentation is an expression of grief over the irreversible. An expression of grief over the irreversible, whereas a lament, as Psalm 120 is, is appealing to God for intervention. Now, all of us probably have lamentation over loved ones who have passed away. We continue to grieve. Although our grief changes, we still miss them. Okay, that's irreversible, but yet we can lament in our current situation. We desire and ask God to intervene in what we're doing. And so Psalm 120 sets the stage for these pilgrims in their villages and their farms and their little towns all around Israel to make this pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. And remember, it was always up because Jerusalem topographically is the highest city in Israel. And so they would always go up. In fact, if you notice, it's called Song of Ascents, each one of these psalms, or Song of Degrees, or Pilgrim Songs. And they were sung as they went up. And remember, there were no superhighways and no air-conditioned tour buses then. They had to walk, or they had the donkeys, or some, some type of cart, perhaps, uh, but they would make their way to Jerusalem to worship. And there is a movement, there is a progression in these psalms from the lament you see in the 120 all the way up to being in the very presence of God at 134. And so this is a picture, a metaphor, if you will, of the Christian life because each, each one of us, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are on a journey. You are on a pilgrimage. Whether you realize it or not, we are moving towards what is promised and Jesus Christ tells us we have a future and hope. We will see him face to face. We will be in a place where there is no more sin forever, if you can imagine that. No more presidential elections. No more of any of this stuff. We are going to be in a perfect environment with Jesus Christ. And so Psalm 120 sets the stage. And the theme is that providence that we are talking about. And God never pursues his glory at the expense of the good of his people, nor does he ever seek our good at the expense of his glory. So verses 1 and 2 talks about the creator before me. This is a psalm not about us, but it is about God himself. And look at verses 1 and 2 again. I will lift my eyes up to the mountains. Remember the psalmist, if it's the same psalmist in 120, I don't know. We don't know that. But he was really deep in lament. He was just disgusted with where he was at. But now he's lifting up his eyes from his current situation, turning his back, 
on Kedar and Meshach, and he said, I will lift my eyes to the mountains. And he asked the question, from where shall my help come? Where shall my help come? Uh, mentioning the mountains here, and, you know, mountains are magnificent, and we love to see them and visit the mountains and see them on, uh, afar. And uh, there's a couple options here. And one of the options, uh, and I think it's a combination of both of these things, but mountains, there's two possibilities of why he mentions the mountains. Because, first of all, it was a place of safety, a place of refuge. Throughout Scripture, we see the people flee to the mountains for safety, for security. And it's also looking up to Jerusalem. When they were walking from the Jordan River Valley up to Jerusalem, it was a mountainous area. So they looked up to the mountains and they knew Jerusalem was there and Zion, the temple was there, the residing place of God for them. Of course, in the church age, God indwells each one of his believers in the church. And so we are indwelt. We are the church as believers in Jesus Christ. This is his dwelling place in us, not in a building. So the mountains was a place of safety, but also it was a place of great fear because there was danger, wild animals. And also in Israel, those, the people would put up places of worship to Baal and other false gods on mountaintops. And so it was also a place of fear and danger, and it was not the ultimate safety. Only God is the safety. In verse 2, he answers his question. He says, my help comes from the Lord. Look at what kind of Lord he has, who made heaven and earth. And Lord here is the, the translation of the proper name of God, Yahweh, that is revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. King James translates it Jehovah. Uh, we don't know what the consonants were and, or the vowel pointing of that word, but we have guessed that it's probably Yahweh is uh, the proper name of God. And that's when it's uh, printed in your Bibles, most of our Bibles, capital L and then small cap O-R-D, that relates that it is Yahweh. If it's capital L, small letter, O-R-D, it's referring to Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for master or Lord. And so the creator before me, where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. He is the creator of all things. The Bible teaches us that God governs the universe, not only inanimate creation, but all the actions of creatures, both men and animals. He is the, called the ruler of all things in First Chronicles 29. He is the blessed and only ruler in First Timothy chapter 6. The one apart from who the sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice in Matthew chapter 10. The prophet Jeremiah asked the question, Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? A, rev, a, rec, a recognition of God's sovereignty in Lamentations 3. Daniel and Daniel 4 said, He is the sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Keep that in mind in 2020, by the way. No one can act outside of God's sovereign will or against it. St. Augustine, centuries ago, said, Nothing therefore happens unless the omnipotent wills it to happen. He either permits it to happen or he brings it about himself. That is an encompassing statement. Nothing happens without God permitting or directing it to happen. The Lord is our keeper. In verses 3 through 8, 1 and 2, notice it's a personal singular pronoun. In 3 through 8, it changes to a third person plural pronoun. And so there's some debate about, well, was this the uh, priest talking in verses 1 and 2, and then the congregation that were walking up to Jerusalem would read out, uh, in the, out loud the rest of this psalm? How did that work? We don't know, but we do know that it is 
definitely a declaration from God about who he is. And in these verses, six times the same Hebrew word occurs. In my Bible, it's translated keeper. He will keep our souls. In your version, you might have protector, guardian, or your watch over. And uh, six times that word occurs. It's the Hebrew word shamar, a beautiful word that he is our keeper. He is the one who is our guardian. He is our sustainer around you in verses 3 through 4. Uh, Jerry Bridges writes about his sustaining uh, presence. The Bible teaches that God not only created the universe, but that he upholds it, sustains it day by day, hour by hour. Hebrews 1.3 says the Son is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Uh, Colossians 1.17, in him all things hold together. In other words, all things are owing their existence to the continuous sustaining action of God exercised through Jesus Christ, his Son. That's why I pray that God, as you give us the next breath of our lungs, the next beat of our hearts, it's by a word he sustains us and cares for it. You know, the so-called laws of nature are nothing more than the physical expression of the steady will of God, of Jesus Christ. The law of gravity operates with unceasing certainty because Christ continually wills it to operate. The stars continue in their courses because he keeps them there. Scripture says in Isaiah 40, 26, he brings out the starry host one by one. He calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Verse 3, this creator God, he is the one in verse 3. It says, he will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. There's that word shamar. He will keep your foot from slipping. Of course, the metaphor is, and the real picture is, is they were rocky trails. They were walking up, and the chance of falling off a cliff or tripping or whatever were there. Uh, so the question is, is, does this mean physically he will, we will never trip and fall? No. But the metaphor here is, the picture is, is that he will sustain us, and he's not a sleeping or slumbering in that. Day and night, he is always active. He's carrying out his perfect plan through that. So the sustainer is around us. We may feel like we get into great trouble. We suffer physical adversity and difficulty and sickness, but it doesn't mean that God is absent from us. Remember, he's working all things out for his glory and for the good of his people. Even though we don't see that kind of adversity as being good for us or good for our families, ultimately God is going to make all things right. Remember, one thing about God is he is absolutely righteous without error, holy, and perfect. Therefore, all his judgments, all his care is perfect and holy without mistakes. Verses 5 through 6, the defender is beside me. The defender is beside me. The scriptures teach us that we must believe that God is completely sovereign if we're going to trust him in adversity. When those crooked places come in our lives, someone has expressed it this way. God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best, and in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. The power to bring it about. The sovereignty of God is either asserted, either uh, is asserted either expressly or implicitly on almost every page of the Bible. When you read, read with eyes and say, "What is this teaching me about God?" No matter where you're at in Scripture, what is this teaching me about God? His strength, His power, His character. Uh, Lamentations 3 again, Jeremiah writes, Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? 
Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Now, many people, many people struggle with this. This is the dissonance of our soul. This is that struggle that we have. God, why are you allowing this to happen? He is defender. Look at verse 5. The Lord is your keeper. There's that word again. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Why the right hand? Well, the right hand is a symbol of power and physical strength, and it's used of God sitting at God's right hand or Jesus Christ's right hand. It's the idea of power and strength and authority, and each one of us has a certain amount of power, strength, and authority within the realm that we live. And it tells us that he is our shade, and the picture is, is in the hot Mideastern sun, that he will protect us from that. And from verse 6, he says, The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, modern commentators have gotten pretty fanciful, fanciful with defining this. They talk about <clears throat> uh, sunstroke, and then they talk about uh, mental problems because the moon traditionally, historically, was believed to cause mental issues and mental problems. I don't think that's it. It's really the, the, the uh, structure of the Hebrew here. It's called a merism, which is a figure of speech. It means from beginning to end and everything in between. And so night and day, day and night, God is always your keeper. He is always your defender beside you from beginning and in everything in, in heaven and earth. God is your keeper. And then fourthly, he's your protector forever, verses 7 and 8. And this is like the benediction of the psalm and where he says, the Lord, <clears throat> excuse me, the Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going in and your coming and your coming in, going out and coming in from this time forth and forever. One of our problems with the providential care of God is that it frequently does not appear that God is control, in control of our circumstances. We see unjust uh, injustice around the world, around us, people who don't care for others, wicked people doing things that adversely affect us, and uh, we experience the consequences of other people's mistakes and failures, we even do foolish and make mistakes ourselves, and we suffer the consequences and often bitter fruit of our own actions. Uh, but it is in the ability to God to arrange all of these diverse human actions to fulfill his purposes and to providentially, and yet, uh, which is marvelous and mysterious, his rule is invincible, incomprehensible, and yet it remains a mystery, just like his sovereignty, his power, his control, and man's ability to choose. The Bible doesn't teach us how those things come together. But his ways are higher than our ways, Isaiah tells us. And his judgments are unsearchable. His paths are beyond tracing out. You know, all of us uh, who are people, believers and unbelievers, uh, we experience anxiety. We experience frustration, heartache, disappointment. Uh, adversity in our lives, yet uh, in some even suffer f intense physical pain and catastrophic tragedies in life. But what should distinguish the suffering of believers from those who don't believe in Jesus for everlasting life? What is the distinguishing mark? It's the confidence that our suffering is under the complete control of an all-powerful, all-loving God, even though we don't understand why he is allowing that to happen. Our suffering has meaning. It tells us elsewhere in the Old Testament that he will not waste our tears. I don't know how many billions upon billions of gallons of tears have flowed in this world, but he will not waste one of them. He is all-powerful. 
All loving or suffering has meaning and purpose in God's plan. He brings or allows into our lives only what is good for his glory and is good for his people. He is our protector. He is our security. In verse 7, he will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. King James, I think, has preserves, preserves us. He will keep our souls, guard all of our activity. He is our protector now and forevermore. In verse 8, you're going out and you're coming in. Another mirrorism in Hebrew, which means no matter where you go, no matter what you do, he will protect you. In fact, I was thinking this week that wouldn't it be wonderful? In fact, the Hebrews used to do this. In fact, they still do this, observant Jewish people. Remember, they have the little, uh, I can't pronounce the name, the little... (laughs) Uh, steel thing on their door. It has a part of Deuteronomy in it. The God our Lord is one. And uh, they touch it. And then when they go into a room, they recite verse 8 here. The Lord will guard your soul. He will, you're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And I was thinking, you know, if you're parenting children and you send them off to school, wouldn't it be great uh, to recite the last couple of verses here as they go out the door? And to pray for them, or when your your spouse goes to work, or when you're taking a trip, uh, just to remind yourself that the sovereign God knows exactly where you are. So we are encouraged to trust Him in the pilgrimages of life. Remember, we're on this journey, and there's going to be adversities and difficulties. And yet, do we really trust God? Uh, the problem arises when reality meets this poem, doesn't it? When the crooked part of the road enters our life. Does this psalm guarantee unconditional protection from harm and danger to the pilgrim? Did believers never suffer from uh, sunstroke or fall into the hands of bandits or strip, trip, and fall? It is apparent that while the psalm speaks of such blanket protection, the pilgrim must understand that everything that invades his or her life is under God's watchful care and providence. The spirit of the psalm is to evoke trust in God, the keeper of the pilgrim, the keeper of Israel, the maker, the keeper of heaven and earth. Often things that happen in your life, in my life, as we are on this journey, uh, would not be our choice, would it? We would not choose those things. But this psalm is not pointed in our direction, really. We need to remember that this is key to understanding this psalm. The direction is upward towards God. The believer must recognize that life is a gift from God, the giver of life. The pilgrim can confidently rest knowing that God's glory will prevail and justice and righteousness will ultimately rule. This is the long view. Of course, we want to be out from under the adversity and difficulty and pain yesterday. And yet some, for some people, for I think most people, there is something that keeps going The confidence in this Psalm 121 is rooted in the grandeur of who and what God is. It's not rooted in our circumstances and our situations. It's rooted in the maker of heaven and earth. He is the keeper. In spite of the perils we face in this life and the unknown, God knows it all. He can see the future exhaustively. He knows what this day holds. I don't even know what the next 20 minutes holds. uh, But he knows it all. And he knows you. He's not too great to care, nor are God's people too insignificant to be noticed. Remember, there's no small small places in God's economy. I'm so weary of, uh, this is an aside, so weary in evangelicalism of saying that the big churches in the big cities are the ones that got it all together. 
I think you've got it together too. And so that's just my little rant on that thing. Uh, this quiet psalm, when you think about Psalm 121, it reflects on God who quells our anxiety. When we reflect back that God is sovereign, he's providential, he's working all things out, even though I don't understand him, for his glory and for the good of his people. And he is a shepherd, he is gentle, and he has the guardian's vigilance, and he gives thoughtful benediction to one's daily routines. And that's why when my head hits the pillow at night, I try to remember God's sovereignty before I go to sleep. Just to reflect on God is sovereign today. The sun came up, things happened, God is completely in control of all things. The point of this psalm is that we will go through, not go through life with a bunch of problems, you know. That's not the point. But God will keep us safe as we go through them. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a future and a hope. You have the assurance that you will see him face to face, that nothing will destroy that. The mature Christian is neither blind to trouble, to trouble or not in fear of it either. For the mature Christian is following after Jesus Christ, who said in John 16, 33, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for this psalm. And Lord, as we struggle uh, with understanding uh, your character and understanding the adversity and the difficulty we face, as well as seeing uh, just catastrophic things occur around us, we pray, Lord, that we would place our faith in you, not in our understanding, not in the handles we can try to affix to different things that happen to us. But, Lord, that we would reflect upon the fact that you are righteous, you are good, and you are holy. And, Lord, as we continue this pilgrim pathway, as we continue the walk to follow Jesus Christ, we pray that you would bless us in the days ahead as you give us our days. And, Lord, that we would have an understanding of who and what you are. And we thank you that you can do that for us. In Jesus' powerful name I pray.